This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. On our podcast today, a possible breakthrough. Johnson & Johnson takes the first step toward a COVID-19 vaccine. The company has now identified a so-called lead candidate with enough potential to warrant clinical trials. The company's CEO, Alex Gorski, joins us. We're working jointly with the government on this. We'll be putting more than a billion dollars worth of investment, both in terms of the research and development. And former head of the FDA, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, strikes a hopeful tone. I think in July and August, we'll be getting back to our lives. It's Monday, March 30th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's Monday, and this week starts, well, much like the last one. Coronavirus cases around the world continue to climb. Data compiled by Johns Hopkins University shows over 700,000 coronavirus cases have been confirmed globally. The U.S. overtook Italy and China last week as the country with the most cases, with nearly half of all U.S. cases in New York. President Trump on Sunday extended the national social distancing guideline to April 30th after suggesting the death rate could peak in two weeks. This was a reversal for the president, who initially said he hoped the country could reopen for business by Easter, just about two weeks away. Trump said the administration is now working to keep the projected death toll below 100,000. Becky Quick spoke with former FDA head and Squawk Box regular Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Joining us right now to talk about what he sees happening and potentially some plans for when things might actually open up again is former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He is also a CNBC contributor and he serves on the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. And yesterday he put out a plan along with a few other people that explains what has to happen before we can get back to work, get back to school. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, why don't you lay out the steps uh, that you think are really vital before we can get back? Well, we believe that in order to start lifting these population-based mitigation tactics, you need to see a sustained reduction in the number of new cases for at least two weeks, two weeks being one incubation cycle. You also need to have the capacity to screen the entire population, people who are presenting with symptoms of coronavirus. So that's a capacity that we peg at about 750,000 people a week. We're going to probably be there by the end of this week. Um, so those are two of the key steps that you need to achieve you also need the ability to do contact tracing and need the ability to support the local health systems if there is an out- outbreak uh, again after you lift these restrictions. Those are some of the conditions that we think to need, need to be met in order to start lifting these population-based mitigation approaches. I think they're probably going to be met towards the end of April into May. I think by the end of April, we're going to be peaking in the number of infections in this country and, and probably into mid-May we'll be able to start contemplating lifting some of these population-based mitigation tactics if you're following what we outline in the plan that we released this weekend. So the White House saying yesterday that they are extending this and expect it to continue at least till April 30th. You think it will take at least a couple of weeks beyond that? Right. You're gonna, it's going to probably peak end of April, which is what we've been saying on this show for a while now, end of April, early May. And then you want to wait a couple of weeks to make sure that the reduction in cases that you're seeing is a sustained reduction before you start lifting some of these population-based mitigation approaches. The president talked about June getting back to business. I think that's probably about right. We'll be, in May, we'll be coming down um, the epidemic curve. We'll be starting to slowly lift these approaches and substitute in other things. For example, you might tell a population that they don't need to shelter in place, but they need to wear masks, masks if they go out. Um, into June, we'll be continuing to slowly take our foot off the brake. And I think in July and August, we'll be getting back to our lives. I think that you know, the summer also, the, the depth of the summer is also going to present a backstop. One of the concerns needs to be back in, when we come back in September that this doesn't come back again. There's likely to be some seasonality to that. And I think we can put in place the tools now. We have time 
to think about what that toolbox is to try to get it in place to make sure we don't have large outbreaks and certainly don't have another epidemic come the fall. Part of it is not just getting tested and making sure people get the test to see if they uh, have a test positive for coronavirus, but making sure you can get those results back in a timely matter, not not waiting a week, not waiting 12 days in some cases and beyond to try and see what the what the situation is. Right. They have a backlog of tests right now, and that's why they slowed down community based testing and try to work off that backlog, which was largely around the hospitals. They didn't want to have tests delayed at the hospitals, so people were waiting in the hospital to get their test results back. So they worked off that backlog this week. I think you're going to see them roll out more community-based testing going into this coming week, especially with the approval of the Abbott system and Cephi's gene expert. Those are community-based testing devices. What you really want, and I wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend with Lawrence Silvis, is a massive sentinel surveillance system where you can be testing people randomly in the background to detect where the virus might be spreading. And that's going to be an early tripwire so you can know if the virus is spreading in a community. You can start implementing some measures there, start implementing case-based interventions. That's what we need. If we have that in place and hopefully have a therapeutic, and I think we will have a therapeutic by the end of the summer, that's a robust toolbox Mm -hmm. that can prevent another scenario like what we're experiencing right now. Fantastic. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you again. We appreciate uh, your, your regular updates. Next on Squawk Pod, Johnson & Johnson CEO on getting a COVID-19 vaccine out for clinical trials soon. We have very good early indicators that not only can we depend on this to be a, a safe vaccine base, but also one that will ultimately be effective based on all the early testing and modeling that we've been doing. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Death tolls and hospitalizations from COVID-19 are still climbing globally, and pharmaceutical companies like Gilead, Moderna, and China-based CanSino Biological are rushing to find a vaccine. Today, we got some good news from one drug maker in the race, Johnson & Johnson. After working on a COVID-19 vaccine since January, the company has identified a so-called lead candidate. That is a treatment with enough potential to warrant clinical trials. J&J expects to launch phase one clinical trials by September at the latest, with the first batch of vaccines available for emergency use by early 2021. 2021 may seem far away, but considering the process takes five to seven years under normal circumstances, this is good news. And investors think so too. When the news broke at 7.30 this morning, Johnson & Johnson's stock rose more than 4% in pre-market trading. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin kicking things off with J&J CEO Alex Gorski. Tell us about uh, what's gone into this and why uh, you are so optimistic about it. We're very excited about the announcement that uh, we're making this morning about the partnership that we're doing with BARDA, which is the government agency responsible for pandemics and vaccines and uh, in what we're going to be doing to accelerate our development, but also our production for something against COVID-19. And, you know, really this started decades ago. We've been working in the immunology field for some time. Uh, We've been working in areas, for example, like SARS, Ebola, HIV. And I think what gives us a lot of confidence is based upon the work that we've done with this vaccine platform, Uh, We have very good early indicators that not only can we depend on this to be a a safe vaccine base, but also one that will ultimately be effective based on all the early testing and modeling that we've been doing. As you mentioned earlier, we expect to begin first in human testing in September. 
But in parallel, as you know, not only do you need a, a safe and effective vaccine, but you also need to have one that can be produced in very large volumes. We're going to be doing that at risk simultaneously right here in the United States. And, uh, and we expect to have results, interim results, at least from our trials, likely in December, at the latest early January, that should put us in a position early in 2021 to literally have hundreds of millions of doses available, and then by the end of the year, up to a billion. Uh, so that's our plan. That's the reason why we're confident. We, we understand we've got more testing. We still have a lot more work to do. But uh, this is a bit of a moonshot for J&J uh, going forward, but it's one that we feel very, is very important for us to be doing at this period in time. So, Alex, in terms, though, of the timeline, uh, the ability to get this into the marketplace, if you will, you're talking about early 2021 for, for, for lots of people to get this. Is that going to be just for special access or are you talking really about next summer? What, what's that timeline look like in your mind? Sure, Andrew. Well, look, it, uh, I don't mean to sound like an economist, but it, it is going to depend on a few factors. But let me tell you why we're optimistic. If we have the interim results from our clinical trials late this year, and let's just uh, project forward a, a time where, frankly, there still is you know, significant concern about the pandemic as we head into 2021, we will have the ability uh, to work with regulators to determine, first of all, that we have a safe and effective vaccine based upon our trial results within the first quarter of next year. And because we will have made the efforts to open up a production facility here in the U.S. to do the, all the technology transfer that's required, we should also be in a position to have a very significant number of dosages available in that Q1, Q2 period. Now, Look, we're going to have to learn more. We're going to have to see exactly what our yield is. But we're very confident in the underlying technology that we have, that we, that we can have that level of dosages available and then ultimately make the right decision, again, early in 2021 uh, about you know, what's in the best public health interest and how we, how we proceed. Alex, uh, what is this uh, vaccine going to cost the consumer, do you imagine? And um, and your stock has moved on this number. Is this going to be profitable for you? Well, look, this is about doing right, but for global public health. And uh, as we said in our statement, we want to, our number one concern after bringing it you know, out and demonstrating that it's safe and effective is to make sure that it's accessible and affordable on a global level. Uh, and in fact, we're taking it a step further and we're going to say we're going to do this on a not for profit basis. Uh, we're working jointly with the government on this, where we'll be uh, putting more than a billion dollars worth of investment, both in terms of the research and development, but also scaling up the production uh, capacity on this, uh, you know, in the very near term. Uh, and, and so that's our expectation. You know, it's difficult for me to say an exact price because we still have to determine some of these other factors. But look, we want to make sure, again, that everyone can get access and that we can do so basically consistent with what you see other commonly used vaccines for, uh, you know, here in our country and around the world. Hey, Alex, uh, you, you had your economist hat on for a second. Put on your scientist hat for me. It, tell me what, what you're keying on in terms of uh, basing the vaccine on. Is it, is it something on the surface of the virus? Is it, is it something that, that uh, is in the, the nucleic acids, the mRNA it, it, itself? And is it, why are you confident that this is conserved. Uh, in other words, if there's mutations, this will be essential to the way the virus works. So it'll uh, it'll continue to work uh, even if there is a mutation. 
Look, Joe, I appreciate the question. And uh, let me let me respond this way. I think, first of all, we've got a lot of confidence because, as you know, when you're building a vaccine, you almost have got to think about one way to think about it is like a car. And the body of the car, the platform that we're using is one that we have already demonstrated safety and efficacy in things like SARS, which, as you know, as a biologist, is a similar condition and what we're or similar science to what we're seeing with COVID-19. We've also used it in older patients for Ebola, for example, in younger patients, and we've seen the safety to be, uh, you know, very consistent. This next step, of course, was, okay, now what kind of a motor, what kind of software can we insert into that car that's actually going to be effective against COVID-19? And what you, what we know about all of the work that we've done in vaccines is the early testing that we're doing, both in vivo as well as in some animal models, tends to be very predictive of ultimately what you're going to see in the human trials itself. As you know, the, you know, the coronavirus, it's a tough virus. It's an RNA virus. And, and, and so we're uh, based upon what we've seen so far. We think that we've got the right approach. Obviously, we wouldn't be taking these other steps if we didn't feel that way. But we do have to conduct the human trials and we'll learn a lot more through that process as we go through the fourth quarter of this year. And you could, sc- you could scale up manufacturing quickly and get a lot of it. It's not like some of the vaccines that are very difficult to, to make. Joe, that, that's a great point. And, and as, as I'm sure you're aware, with traditional vaccines, frequently you're actually working with an egg, like a chicken egg, where you may be able to yield a couple of doses per egg. It has to be done on the surface of a very large vat. And that, of course, takes time uh, and can result in years of development. What's unique about our approach, and it's interesting, but it's actually from a technology, another vaccine platform that we we're going after that initially we didn't achieve some of our objectives. And that frequently happens in investment and research and development. But the production capability is called per C6. So basically what that does, and instead of having to use an egg or instead of having to have it on the surface, this can be done where it's very uh, in an intense environment. So think of a thousand liter beaker where these proteins can be harvested. They don't need to be on the surface. And, and so we can get very high yield. So, for example, in a thousand liter beaker, we're getting yields of literally hundreds of millions of vaccines. And that, of course, is what gives us the confidence that not only will we have a vaccine that works, but we can produce it in the kind of volumes that are really going to make the difference and, and frankly, tamp down the curve and, you know, eventually prevent this virus from happening in the first place. Alex, that's kind of related to my question. I know that you guys are taking what would normally take five to six years and compressing it into five to six months. And I just wonder, is that because technology is advancing so quickly? Is that because you're pouring a billion dollars worth of resources into it? Is that because the FDA is relaxing some of its guidelines? What what gets you to that point? You know, Becky, it's really all the above. And it starts with, and let me just say a huge thank you to Dr. Paul Stoffels, Dr. Johan von Hoof. I mean, people who have poured you know, a good chunk of their careers into understanding infectious disease and conditions like this. Uh, And they have literally been working 24-7 to identify, you know, how do we, first of all, put this through the most rigorous tests that are going to give us the signal 
that indicates it. And we quickly went through our library, and that's where now we have focused on this one particular vector uh, that we're highly confident in. Simultaneously, we've been working on all the technology transfer, the production ramp-up. So another shout-out to our global supply chain uh, colleagues who have been working round the clock to say, how can we do this? And by the way, how can we do this in the United States, even though that's not where some of the original technology was developed? How can we bring it here at a level that we can scale up, not compromise at all in regarding safety or quality, uh, but do it in the right way? And so all those factors, and then, of course, the partnership with the United States and I want to thank the government, BARDA, the work that they've been doing, HHS, also the FDA. They've worked closely with us. You know, as you know, if you do an interim analysis statistically, how can we accelerate that? Uh, again, making sure that we're getting all the information that we need, but also recognize, you know, frankly, the right. situation that we're in around the world. Alex, uh, we want to thank you uh, for joining us this morning. We also want to wish you uh, well. Uh, your success will be the world's success, and we appreciate you joining us uh, this morning. Well, Andrew Jonebeck, no, just thank you. And look, biology started this, and biology and pharmacology is going to be a big part of winning this in the end, and we are absolutely right. committed to making that happen. Thank you, guys. Squawk Pod is back after this. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod, available for free on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.